Reaction. 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 Nice. Gold dust. Toy Troy, welcome to the podcast. Before we get started, I don't have I even got one myself? I must, I'll think of one. I want to know a bonkers fact. It can be anything. A bonkers fact about me. So I was actually having a think about this, and I think bonkers is quite relative, but there was one that kind of cropped up in my family history uh, a couple of years ago. And I don't know to what extent my grandma actually has like validity for saying this, but my um, English side of the family is a Stanley and they come from the um, northern part of the UK around Manchester and Liverpool. And my grandma did a bit of digging and thinks or she found out that we might be related to John Lennon because <gasps> um, John Lennon's mother is Julia Stanley and they come from exactly the same region and it's funny because my grandma was actually friends with John Lennon growing up so that would have been even more spooky had we been related uh, but she did a, a bit of family tree digging and she reckons that we are cousins of some sort to John Lennon there we go. That is <laughs> that is bonkers. I feel like I'm in the presence of musical greatness now. Who knew? <laughs> okay, yeah. well, on that theme, then, you just inspired me. <laughs> this is in no way comparative. I can't believe I'm actually even using this as my bonkers fact. <laughs> but um, my dad used to live next door to Robbie Williams. Not related, just neighbours, but still. Yep, there you That's go. That's very cool. John Lennon, cool. Robbie Williams, you know, kind of the same thing. I did see Robbie in London when I was walking around South Kent because his uh, kids study at the French school there. Do so, they? You know, yeah, yeah. Well, you should have told him that, you know, the Millses say hi, they're long lost neighbours. <laughs> <laughs> like, sorry, who? Sorry, who? Well, there we go. <laughs> Enough yeah. about celebs. So yeah. I've already introduced you as Tori Choi. But yes. I'd like you to tell me and tell our listeners a bit about yourself. So I've already done your name, so we can get that one out of the way. Yeah, but what sure. is it that you do? So I guess I would identify myself as a climate activist, which is still a term that I'm trying to settle into. Because, I mean, as far as, you know, my trajectory of climate activism goes, it's quite short in comparison to other careers that I've fostered or, like, tried to curate for myself so climate activist and loosely a communicator of sorts before i got into climate activism i did a lot of science communication and did a lot of comms jobs as well that i would go so far as to say like i saw that as a trajectory for myself to some degree and also a mental health advocate i think those are the three things that i would use to describe myself um, also sort of a little bit of background I guess originally from Hong Kong I was actually born in New Zealand and lived there for a little bit of time um, grew up in Hong Kong and then moved to the UK for my studies and my father is British he's English and Welsh my mum is Taiwanese Cantonese and Macanese so Macau is um, an ex-Portuguese colony so there's a little bit of Portuguese thrown in there and it's something I'm trying to navigate at the moment how much my heritage is part of my identity because before I used to just see myself as this homogenized Hong Konger that happened to study in the UK and was you know born somewhere else but I'm currently going through a process of unpacking what that means and um, yeah I think it is very much 
being this like weird third culture kid hybrid yeah. part of my identity <laughs> definitely yeah. and I think that's such a personal journey and something that I think a lot of people maybe don't even go on but it's good that you've kind of said no actually this is something I want to unpack and I want to explore and kind of I guess then communicate to other people first of all understand it within yourself you know who actually yeah. are you what is your cultural heritage and your identity and how do you then use that to express who you are and you know make your decisions and the way that you do things I think that's really cool I think it's really important so something that when I stumbled across you and one of the big things that came across was the big word Stella McCartney you (laughs) (laughs) correct me if I'm wrong but I saw that you were picked up picked up is such a weird word but by Stella McCartney after they saw your activism within Extinction Rebellion is that correct perfect so there's actually like two parts to it but yeah go on it's it's a weird story (laughs) tell me tell me all I was going to say is what did that what did that collaboration involve so I guess yeah it comes from the two parts yeah so a few months ago I say a few months gosh time has flown last year (laughs) oh my goodness (laughs) um basically I was asked to create some content for Extinction Rebellion's Instagram page by one of my friends who managed the social channels. And, you know, I moved to Bristol uh, about three years ago with the intentions of, of getting involved in the wildlife filmmaking industry because science communication was something I was very interested in. I decided I didn't want to go down the academic route, but I had a lot of interest and passion for conservation. And I thought, well, I am very interested in creative content and communication, so this makes sense. And I filmed a lot of wildlife over the years as part of this, and my friend said, well, you've got all of this footage, can you create something that talks about the impact of, you know, the climate crisis on wildlife? So I created three very short, not amazing, (laughs) very rushed pieces for extinction rebellion on the impact of the climate crisis on Magellanic penguins, sea otters, and the Chinese pink dolphin. So Stella's creative director stumbled across me on the XR page, and she sent me an Instagram message saying, hi, we're from Stella McCartney. Um, We're interested in collaborating with you on this campaign. So I was like, oh, okay. Uh, (laughs) Hi, Stella. (laughs) Yeah let me know what you want um <laughs> just, yeah I just didn't really understand like what the context context was and I didn't really realize how what it entailed or how big it was I just thought it'd be a digital campaign so I was like yeah sure okay and they said can you please send us some pictures of yourself your height your weight your measurements blah, 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 blah. um and also uh some facts about you and what you do and i was like okay this sounds sounds a bit strange (laughs) sent sent them the email and they were like okay we'll get back to you didn't really hear anything for a while so i was like "Mm, okay and then i was in london for the extinction rebellion spring uprising protest i was just sitting on the grass and then two women came up to me and they're like are you tory and i was like oh god who are you (laughs) like we're from stella mccartney do you mind if we just take some more pictures of you and i was like okay sure so they took some pictures and then I was actually in um London doing this almost like this workshop or class and I get a text message saying can you please come to the Brecon Beacons tonight so hop on a train to Cardiff so I did that and then yeah and then the rest is history so I ended up being part of this 
global campaign that I had really no idea what it entailed and went to Wales and the next day, 6am, we got driven to the middle of nowhere. Um, and there were, you know, about seven RV trucks and film crew and cameras every, I just really did not expect, uh, that it sounds a little bit like a kidnap (laughs) yeah Mm, yeah yeah i yeah i I mean i went from being in london literally in like really really tatty old clothes because i've been you know protesting and living in this stuff to being put in this you know array of clothing by stella mccartney and hair and makeup and all this stuff it was crazy um so that's kind of how it started. That is wild. And then from that, I'm going to call it the, the Stella Kidnap. They, yeah. <laughs> they they then went on to sponsor your sale to the United Nations Climate Change Conference, COP25, through, yeah. I think it was called Sale to COP. Is that correct? Yeah. So, yeah, so how did that yeah. come about? Oh, gosh, that was, again, through Instagram. One, The same person that had asked me to make the extinction rebellion videos shared them on her profile her name's earth wondrous on instagram she's quite quite a big influencer and um one of her followers messaged me a girl called nap who's actually one of my good friends now she said hey i'm part of this thing which is taking european youth to the un climate conference and i notice you've been talking a lot about aviation and the impact of aviation my profile and she said i don't know if you're interested but we're still looking for partners who want to sail to the cop and i said oh yeah this looks interesting not really thinking much about it because i kind of settled into routine in bristol it it would entail being away for like two three months how would i get home what was the fee for participating and i i inquired i sent an email and they said look we've got partner spaces left but this is the amount that you'd have to raise and I just went (laughs) 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 but uh I don't have that kind of money and um and I didn't really think very much of it and my partner suggested that I'd email Stella because obviously Stella has a lot more influence and probably financial means than old me uh and i thought okay fine i'll just do it i'll probably say no because it's a lot of money and um i sent the email and i got pretty much an instant response saying yeah we'll sponsor you and i went god what (laughs) i really did not expect them to say yes i'd almost consigned myself to spending the next few months just chilling in bristol just going to protest every now and then continuing with my day job and then I got this email saying, yeah, we'll sponsor you. And I was like, great. Looks like I'm sailing across the world now. <laughs> uh, thanks, Stella. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Stella. And yeah, so from there, we had a training weekend in August where I met the rest of the participants. I had multiple meetings with Stella and their team to discuss kind of what the content was going to be, what the angle was going to be. And, you know, obviously the it didn't turn out as planned because the cop was cancelled but it was still a fantastic way to kickstart things that really um make my heart sing it sounds a bit weird saying the climate crisis makes my heart (laughs) sing but working within this realm is what yeah 
really gets me going let's put it that way I think uh, it's amazing. So yeah, sailing across the Atlantic, COP being cancelled. It's only supposed to take two months. Ended up living on a sailboat for three and going somewhere completely different. It was supposed to end up in Rio de Janeiro. We ended up uh, thousands of kilometres north uh, in Cartagena in Colombia. So, yeah. That's amazing. I mean, sometimes things don't work out, but it doesn't mean that... What's that, what's that weird saying? It's like the adventure... The travel or the adventure. Do you know what? I'm not even going to try and say yeah. it. There's a saying. Yeah. I think you know I, the one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know the one. I know the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Completely. It's that. It's that. We agree on that. So, yeah. <laughs> thinking about like sailing and obviously, I guess, like sustainable travel. What, Ooh. in your opinion, like what are the main issues that I guess we should perhaps all be aware of when it comes to sustainable travel and, you know, how that has an impact on the planet? So, one of the things that I had really tried to unpack is the disparity in who has access to aviation and who doesn't. A minute fraction of the world flies. Uh, I think it's, I mean, I would say it's 5%, but that's not correct. I think it's 12%. 12% of the global population has ever flown. And when you think about how much impact such a relatively small percentage of the globe has on the planet there's got to be something that we do to stop the growth of that and a lot of people don't think aviation is a very big problem now objectively compared to a lot of other industries it doesn't have as high a carbon emission percentage. So it's 5% of the global carbon emissions. Some people say 2%, but that doesn't account for things like contrails and alternative gases that do contribute to global warming. And basically, 5% isn't much, but it is a lot when you consider how a very small proportion of the population contributes to this and the fact that it is one of the fastest growing industries in the world. Yeah. Now, I thought that sailing across the Atlantic Ocean would revolutionize the way that I see sustainable travel. I'd be like, yep, everyone will sail. <laughs> this is going to be the solution. No, <laughs> sailing is grossly uncomfortable and uh, takes a very long time. It took me three months to sail to Cartagena from Europe, and it took me nine hours to fly back from Bogota to London so you can see why people fly and I think there's also a lot to be said about telling people that they can't fly when they've not had the privilege to fly in the past so this is something I'm navigating but in terms of what we can do I think a large part of what I'm trying to think about is those people who fly for business meetings every weekend or people who always fly for holidays Because in my opinion, those two things aren't necessarily essential. I mean, if this pandemic shown us anything, it's that we can work over Zoom and that we have the capacity to do stuff like this. So remote conferencing for me is something that I think should be championed more. And I'm not saying the coronavirus is the great equalizer. It's far from, it's it's awful. But if there's one thing that it has shown, it's that we can start adapting our lives to reduce carbon emissions. Granted, the reduction of carbon emissions is not as great as people think, and it's it's not the solution at all. It's far from um, this way of life. But 
it makes me think that we can start implementing things to avoid unnecessary travel. I wouldn't go so far as to say we'd be able to ban aviation, but to cap its growth for sure, to tax the folks who work within the aviation industry on kerosene because their fuel is not taxed, which is ridiculous. Yeah. And they're one of the few, um, so in the context of you know, the UN climate conferences, they have these things called nationally determined contributions. So each country has specific NDCs. Uh, different industries have um, carbon emissions that contribute to the overall picture. And aviation is not accounted for. It's just almost got a free pass. People don't, yeah, people don't consider aviation as one of the main polluting sources and contributions to the climate crisis, which is insane. Yeah, it is. Um, and I, I don't know the ins and outs of why this is, but part of me has a feeling that it has to do with lobbying and subsidies. And we were listening to this really fascinating talk by the uh, Belgian Ministry of Transportation and Environment, and some flights are subsidized up to 50% by taxpayer money. So they were looking at a case study of London to Barcelona and the reason why some of these flights are so cheap is because taxpayer money goes towards subsidizing these flights and why are we not subsidizing train travel why are we yeah. not subsidizing more alternative uh, sustainable forms of transportation and because there's a lot of lobbying involved with the aviation industry and fossil fuel industries so wealthy they have the money to lobby for these types of sub subsidies so yeah it's a really complicated issue but a lot of things that go behind closed doors um as so is always the way yeah that's mad that's absolutely mad yeah but i think like you said i think maybe it's 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 a bigger issue than just like everyone should now go sailing because like you said it's it, it goes so much deeper than that and it's actually like you know a, a a lifestyle issue for many people as well and i think if there if there's anything that we've seen especially you know with what's happened during coronavirus it's that people are prepared only maybe to make more sustainable decisions and sustainable switches if it doesn't have such a big impact on their life. I think that's the harsh reality of the way that, I don't know, that we're maybe programmed or the maybe that we've been told that we should be living or the societies that we live in. But yeah, I think like you said, there's there's a lot more to it rather than just being like, right, let's all buy a boat yeah. <laughs> and everything yeah. will be solved. Like, I think it's I mean, much deeper than yeah. that. Completely. And me sailing across the Atlantic Ocean, I already alluded to how expensive it was. Chartering a three-mast schooner to sail across the Atlantic for three months costs a lot of money. And that is a huge privilege. And I mean, I couldn't have done it without Stella. So that says everything, right? So it's, it's a very privileged, very utopian-style mm. way of traveling that is not accessible. And I just remember being on the sailboat and thinking, my mum will never travel like this. Yeah. As I, you know watching my friends keeled over the side puking their guts out and the salty water would completely corrode you know our clothes and everything um and just living in quite dare i say somewhat abysmal conditions at times we had a lice outbreak for instance like oh, and God. some people got scabies like things like this right um and it was really claustrophobic i mean it was like a it was less than 40 meters the, the size of that boat and we were all cramped on there um, and I had many sleepless nights. I'd say I didn't get a decent night's sleep until I actually reached landing Columbia. So there's that. But then also when I think about this, so much of 
change is put on people and individuals and this idea of bottom up bottom up change and um i think being part of this think tank and, and realizing how inaccessible sailing is for people has made me realize how much of society puts pressures on individuals to divert from the attention of the systems and the big corporations that ultimately have a huge grasp on our global carbon emissions and to remove the i guess right of people to make certain lifestyle choices is to ultimately flex and say that individuals are responsible for this when it's something like 100 companies are responsible for like 90 percent plus emissions um and that to me says it all really i i i think it is a very um important thing to consider both bottom up and top down change but i would say top top down change is the thing that i'm more concerned about these days and when i was talking to some of my friends about getting into climate activism and getting into environmentalism the first way that people validate their existence within this sphere is to make individual changes and that's a very powerful way of getting involved and as people start to get more comfortable in this conversation we start to realize that individual change while it's really empowering um you become more aware aware of the societal systematic um pressures and problems that exist and that's i think the stage that i'm at now when i first started i was very preoccupied with individual change which i still think is very important and i'll still make you know as much effort as possible to be zero waste um i eat a plant-based diet to take train instead of you know a car or a fly etc but i think it's beyond my individual changes at this point you know when i think about it realistically yeah. Um, and that's really important to remember. I think you're so right. And I think what's interesting is what you touched on there is I think, you know, top down is realistically where the big things need to happen. It needs to be like bigger. Mm. It needs to be systemic changes. But often, kind of like what you said, it requires the individual change to even realise that the top needs to change. Because if you're not if you're not engaged okay. in that journey at all, you're you're not necessarily aware of the process in the slightest whereas if you're kind of entering into it and you feel like you are doing as much as you can but ultimately you know you can only go so far without big companies who have the money and who have the power and are doing stuff all the time that goes unnoticed a bit like what you and I spoke about before we started recording you know and yeah. until those big people are being held accountable you know maybe the big change that actually really needs to happen won't happen but I think it's a weird balance isn't it you kind of need to enter on that journey to realize that the system needs to flip over very 100%. bizarre it's a whole other situation so you then worked but like this conversation is very heavily sailing focused for, <laughs> at the moment you then worked on another project called sail for climate action yeah and I really would love to know about like the the work that you did here but more importantly I guess the importance of raising the voices of young activists from Latin America, the Caribbean, and from Europe as well. Yeah, so just a small disclaimer, before I did Sail to the Cop, I'd never set foot on a sailboat. And I'd never sailed in my life. So you can imagine I had a great time learning how to pull ropes and trying to navigate uh, being constantly seasick. In fact, I didn't actually throw up. That's a bit of a lie. Like, I was seasick, but I was one of the few people that didn't throw up. Anyway, <laughs> um, getting to Colombia was a bit of a 
an interesting experience. So the COP had been cancelled and we did remote conferencing on the island of Martinique and everyone goes, oh, you poor things, that must have been so tough. Uh, it was actually a lot of work and I was sick for the majority of it. So instead of lounging around on a beach with my laptop, I was actually just, you know, stewing in a room with tonsillitis. <laughs> it wasn't very fun for me, but I learned a lot from it. Anyway, we sailed on to Cartagena in Colombia. Uh, and the captain basically was going to head to Cartagena after he dropped us off at Rio de Janeiro to work as a shuttling service between Panama and Cartagena. So people would pay, get on the boat, sail back and forth. And so he was like, well, I'll drop you folks off in Colombia if you want to. So we decided we're going to sail on. And one of my friends was like, I feel kind of empty. I've sailed all this way across the world. I know that we have achieved a lot through remote conferencing, but wouldn't it be such a shame if we didn't make the most of this sailboat being in Colombia? So she asked me if I wanted to work on this project with her. And I mean, this was very, very early stages. Nothing had been concrete. And I said yes, not really knowing what I was getting involved in. And the project evolved into a sailing uh, trip that would take Latin American, Caribbean, indigenous and European youth to the UN Climate Conference in Germany. So we have the COPs at the end of the year, they're the high profile events. And then we have what are called the intercessionals, which are in the middle of the year. They are actually where most of the decision-making processes happen and they're not as press heavy and they're not as exciting but they're very important for decision making. So we were going to take youth to the intercessional in Germany, which was due to take place in June. So Sail for Climate Action ended up being less of a project to do with sustainable travel and more about raising these voices across the Atlantic. And we had team members who were working on finding diverse participants and folks who um, would be a good fit for the project. And then I was working on communications and logistics because I stayed in Cartagena. So organizing, helping organize the sail out, helping organizing their accommodation for the first uh, few days in Cartagena, organizing workshops and finding people who could finance different parts of the trip, helping the participants record some social media content, helping with communications. I was a bit of a mutt, to be honest, in terms of what I was doing uh, role-wise. And you know, um, living in Colombia for three months, working on this project, it, it literally became my everything. And I'm still working on it. And it's, it's really sad what ended up happening, but the project does live on. And um, the Coronavirus pandemic, obviously, and the borders were closing. And, and when the participants had reached Bermuda, the executive decision was to send them home because this wasn't safe and we couldn't guarantee that they'd be allowed into the Netherlands which is where the boat ended up so when we were all settled back in our respective countries we continued with our online workshops and we're still doing those we're doing um I mean the one that I listened to yesterday was absolutely fascinating it was on Caribbean history and how we we had a discussion afterwards about how Caribbean history is just not really taught mm. within the European context and how history is so um, paramount in what we know about a 
oppress people and also how everything is so Eurocentric and how essentially that means that we have very different perspectives of what history is. Like we're all taught European history. That's a given. So we had a, we had a conversation about that. And the project is still living on in that we are doing different workshops and capacity building programs. And we're also organizing a networking event in the next couple of weeks connecting different activists to our participants. And excitingly, we have been partnering with a German organization and the German government is going to sponsor us quite a lot of money <laughs> to put on an event in conjunction with the rescheduled intersessional UN conference in October. Nice. So it's gonna be a three week uh, event that we're going to be doing, hopefully. <clears throat> Uh, so now we're currently working with the German delegation on scheduling this event and getting our participants geared up for that event, provided the coronavirus yeah. doesn't <laughs> kick in. <laughs> that sounds yeah. really exciting and something that's obviously been keeping you super busy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> always busy. But I've mm-hmm. also recently seen, um, again, through your social channels, top oh. stalker over here, that you launched <laughs> a digital strike against the deforestation of the Amazon rainforest. So I guess maybe for people who, you know, are not as as clued up into the issues that there, can you help understand like why it's so important to keep these conversations going whilst the media shifts its gaze elsewhere? So I guess like we said, you know, kind of offline with coronavirus, everyone's talking about coronavirus and you know yeah all these things which are important but again you know why is it so important to make sure that other conversations are happening at the same time i think that the coronavirus has taken center stage and rightly so i mean it's affected a lot of people but in many respects it can kind of be a a huge i don't i don't want to use the word distraction because these things are obviously very important but a lot of environmental issues are going unnoticed. And and when I was talking about the Amazon, it was kind of shedding light on the fact that deforestation rates are increasing and Bolsonaro's, unfortunately, his uh, allies aren't encroaching on indigenous land and um, essentially just destroying regions of indigenous territory and biodiversity hotspots as well. And because of the fact that the coronavirus is taking centre stage, this news is not getting reported on as heavily as it should be. And it's just one clear example of why climate striking should continue, because we need to raise awareness about these things that are happening. But also the fact that this is a really transformative time in the way that we have the potential to reimagine what the future will look like and what society can do to, dare I say, bounce back from this absolute chaotic time and I think as well it's also about reimagining activism so much of activism took place in the streets and protests social media has always been a tool but now it's a tool that everyone more or less can access who has access to internet of course and a device and it means that we can amplify voices of people who would not otherwise have the capacity to go out uh, onto the streets or to protest i mean you know a clear example is indigenous communities that live live within realms where their safety would be compromised if they started protesting and we do see it all the time so many indigenous people in the amazonian regions for instance are so fearful of bolsonaro because they have been massacred their people are massacred every time they stand up 
against folks who encroach on their land, they get killed. Um, and, you know, having this platform to talk about these issues and to continue this conversation is really, really important. And for me as well, thinking about climate activism in the context of the coronavirus, it's been something that's actually been seeing me through this period. It sounds a bit strange and maybe a little bit self-centered, but having energy that I can direct to something helps me cope with this period of time, which is so uncertain and so bewildering. Um, so yeah, for a personal reason, that's why I think it's really important. Yeah, I think you're so right. And I think that actually leads really nicely onto the next point that I wanted to ask you about, which is around eco-anxiety. And I guess, you know, all, all anxieties right now, especially are, you know, feel heightened more now than ever that we're li living in these really pressurised, intense, unrealistic situations of how we may normally live our normal life. But yeah. I feel eco-anxiety, that term especially has been a bit of a buzzword I'd say you know you you can't kind of go through many sustainable profiles of people you know who are severely activists without stumbling across someone talking about eco-anxiety whether they suffer from it whether they think it's a thing or not and obviously it's a very real thing you know we have people you know small children worrying about the yeah. planet that they live on and, and and fearful for you know their their futures which I think is is a very real thing so it is is it something that you've personally experienced? You know, would you say that you, you've felt eco-anxiety? You know, do you still feel like eco-anxiety? Or is there a way that you've actually realised to manage to take that energy and think, you know, okay, instead of having this anxiety, I'm going to transform it into my activism, for example? Yeah, I definitely have experienced a lot of eco-anxiety. And by eco-anxiety, I think... I'm trying to navigate this myself, but I consider eco-anxiety an umbrella term for all of the effects that the climate crisis has had on my mental health. So I've definitely felt depressed. I felt anxious. I felt angry. I felt numb, dissociation, cognitive dissonance, all of these things I consider within this umbrella term. And I would go so far as to say that, you know, I know that a lot of this is probably linked to the fact that I have natural predispositions to suffering from poor mental health anyway. Um, I've definitely suffered from depression and anxiety in long bouts before I have, you know, announced on my socials as a, as a means for solidarity as well, that I suffer from borderline personality disorder, which for folks who don't really know what that is, it's essentially a condition that really affects the way that you perceive things and, and feel things. So for me, I'm, I've always known that I'm a very sensitive person um, and my sensitivity can mean that I'm very prone to crying easily. And, you know, if someone does something that upsets me, I really feel it to the core. And previously I used to see uh, that in conjunction with how the climate crisis was affecting my mood as a really big downfall. But now I've realized that I can harness that sensitivity and use it to care deeply about other people and the planet and i think that my sensitivity is actually one of my greatest strengths and it is a facet of having this condition um and i think that it can be paralyzing sometimes if you worry too much um and if you really feel depressed and and feel completely unable to do anything as a result of this it can be really dangerous and you can fester in those emotions and i've definitely been there and i I would recommend people seek professional help if, if, it, if it gets that bad. But if you're somebody who's able to capitalize on these emotions and make 
something of them, I've really found that my mental well-being has been so much better in relation to eco-anxiety when I've been active or rather proactive within this movement. And that is a huge privilege. I recognize that. But for those of you out there who have the capacity to do that, raising your voice and taking action uh, is very therapeutic. And it's my therapy, really, truly. And my eco-anxiety is not nearly as bad as it used to be. Yeah. That's nice. That's I think that was like a lovely way to perhaps round up and perhaps end, apart from one final question, which I'm going to ask you, yeah. <laughs> which is your track of the day. So this is what I'm going to add in to the end of the show. Well, a little snippet, because otherwise I think yeah. we'll have to pay some kind of royalties, and I'm not doing that. So <laughs> what's your little preview track of the day that you'd like to listen to? Um, so I am... Um one of those people that listens to a lot of classics and i mean folks might even go so far as to say oldies (laughs) Um, yeah (laughs) but i'm i'm listening to music that really reminds me of my time on the sailboat because when we were steering the the ship we would have watches so they would be four hours long where you'd steer the ship little disclaimer again i sucked at it (laughs) i managed i even managed to turn the boat 180 degrees round uh in the direction of Iceland, um, so much so that the captain even personally came outside to congratulate me for, for achieving that. Because, I think yeah, that's I, enough now, Tori. Yeah, <laughs> Off yeah, the I'm, wheel. Yeah, terrible. Um, but regardless of the fact that I managed to steer the boat around and cause absolute havoc, uh, it was a great time to listen to music. And I adore the song Wish You Were Here by Pink Floyd and that is something that I listen to on repeat over and over and over and over again when I was sailing and it's something that I keep listening to as well and there's a fantastic um, animation video that was actually released um, for the song and if you have a moment you should definitely watch it. It's very profound and kind of trippy but I like it. It's um, (laughs) kind of like a sort of animation microcosmic take on life birth and death it's very yeah it's very powerful but yeah that's the that's the song that I'm listening to a lot right now amazing I love that Toy Troy it's been an absolute pleasure I really appreciate your time and thank you for coming on our podcast thank you for having me I really enjoyed it